So let's uh, take up our topic for tonight. Uh, we're still talking about these sutras uh, from the old way. Um, our neighbor uh, was just here actually helping us with Kathy. And he said, oh, I'm enjoying your talks on the old way. I heard them last time when you did it, whenever, decades ago. Of course, we have to repeat the same things because religious texts bear repetition, right? <clears throat> but anyway, he, I said, oh, I never refer to what I said before, and I'm probably saying completely different things. And he said, yes, you're saying completely different things this time. So that's either good or bad, depending on your point of view. So, uh, this is not the first time that I've given a Dharma talk on the simile of the saw. And I'll begin at the beginning. I'm going to read you the first paragraph or two of the text and then comment on it. Thus have I heard. <clears throat> on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jada's Grove, an Adapindicus Park. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Molyafaguna was associating overmuch with bhikkhunis. The, Recording in progress. The nuns. He was associating so much with bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of those bhikkhunis in his presence, he would become angry and displeased and would rebuke him. And if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of the venerable Molyafaguna, in those bhikkhus' presence, they would become angry and displeased and would rebuke him. So much was the venerable Molyafaguna associated with bhikkhunis. Then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and he told the Blessed One what was taking place. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu thus. Come, Bhikkhu, tell the Bhikkhu Moliafaguna in my name that the teacher calls him. Yes, Venerable Sir, he replied. And he went to the Venerable Moliafaguna and told him, The teacher calls you, friend Faguna. Yes, friend, he replied. And he went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. And the Blessed One asked him, Faguna, is it true that you are associating overmuch with the bhikkhunis, that you are associating so much with bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you become angry and displeased and rebuke him. Are you associating so much with bhikkhunis as it seems? Yes, Venerable Sir. Faguna, are you not a clansman who has gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness? Yes, Venerable Sir, I am. Then, Faguna, it is not proper for you, a clansman gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, to associate overmuch with bhikkhunis. Therefore, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. And herein, you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. That is how you should train Faguna.
So that's how the sutra opens. So there are a few things here that bear commenting on. First, the main idea, which is that Faguna is associating overmuch with bhikkhunis. Now, as we will see from the context, the problem is not that he's hanging out with the nuns, because hanging out with nuns is a perfectly okay thing to do. And let's speculate a little and suppose that in those, in those days, when relations between men and women were probably inherently very oppressive to women, I would bet that the relations between monks and nuns in the Sangha were gentler and far more cordial. After all, yes, despite the fact that the, their rule was more restrictive and that they were lower in rank than the male monastics, nevertheless, the nuns were noble practitioners of the way and were treated in, with respect and kindness. So I don't think the problem has to do with the fact that Faguna is hanging out with the nuns. That's not the problem. The problem is that he has become overly attached to them, identifies them, and this is the real problem, that he feels with some heat a need to defend them when someone speaks against him. That's against them. That's the problem. And I think we can all relate to this because uh, I bet that many of us have individual people or groups of people that we feel like we want to defend when somebody speaks against them. We don't like that and we defend them with a lot of heat and anger, energy maybe. So we can relate to this problem that uh, Faguna has. Now, to be sure, to be affectionate or approving of a person or a group is entirely a positive thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But to become so identified that we feel the need to defend this person or group causes all kinds of upset, trouble, and enmity. So the Buddha is saying to Faguna that since he has made a commitment to be a home leaver, a monastic, it is no longer okay for him to be defensive and angry, even if he's defending something positive that he values. The Buddha is telling him that he has to overcome this. Also, it's kind of an interesting, the, the thing about these early suttas, we usually when you hear them discussed, you know, what is discussed is the teaching, right? that comes out of the encounter. But I like to look at the encounters themselves and the details of them, because I think a lot of interesting things that the Buddha taught comes out here. So here, notice that the Buddha himself doesn't witness Faguna's behavior. He hears about it from another monastic. Now maybe when you heard this, you might feel, geez, that was not very nice of that other monastic. He's tattletailing, you know. On, on his colleague to the Buddha. That's not very nice. But, you know, that view might be just our projection from our contemporary point of view. Maybe the monastic, I, I don't say this is true for sure, but it's possible that the monastic is going to the Buddha out of love, knowing 
how bad Faguna's behavior is for Faguna. And knowing that the Buddha is going to be able to straighten out Faguna. So maybe that's the motivation of the monk. We don't really know. Anyway, Buddha hears this and doesn't get upset. He calls Faguna to see him. And he doesn't take for granted that what he heard is true. He asks Faguna, is this true? And then, quite astonishingly, Faguna says, yes, it's true. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't explain why it's true. He just says, yes, you're right, it's true. And I think that, you know, most of us would not it's very commonplace, you know, somebody accuses us of something and right away we have, well, wait, but wait, but wait, you know, it's not my fault, or she said it, or he did it, or there's a reason why, it's, don't blame it on me. Uh, I think we can respect Faguna here for his amazing patience and excellent character. It's kind of quite surprising, especially since we already know that he's somebody who does get upset and defend So then the Buddha says to him, from now on, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. That's the way the Buddha puts it. In other words, Faguna, here's the way you should practice. Note the feeling that arises in you of attachment and aggression. Notice that feeling, that desire to defend. And this is what Buddha is calling a thought based on the household life. But you, Faguna, are no longer a householder, so you need to let go of that feeling. You need not to grab onto it. And here's how you should train. And he seems to be then telling Faguna to repeat to himself, memorize perhaps and repeat to himself this formula whenever he notices this impulse in himself. And here's the phrase again. My mind will be unaffected and I will say nothing mean or nasty. I'll cultivate compassion for the person with whom I'm now angry, with a mind of loving kindness and without hate. That's how you should train Faguna. So I think, you know, we can all relate to this. I certainly can. Definitely, it's pretty clear that it makes no sense for us any more than it does for Faguna to go all huffy and feel like we have to oppose something or someone vehemently with aggressive language, with upset. Yes, we might disagree. We might not like what they say. And maybe we do, in fact, get upset. But it is never good to harbor negative thoughts about anyone. And when we find such thoughts in ourselves, we have to realize that this is the opposite of the Buddha way. And then we have to be patient with ourselves, not pick up those thoughts and run with them. And as the Buddha here instructs, try to let go of the feeling as much as we can, and certainly not say the things we would like to say from that feeling 
to the other person and try our best to remember our commitment to compassion. All beings are Buddha. We, we say that. All sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. We say that. All beings are sacred. We believe that. Including this person in front of me right now who's pissing me off. So that's what the Buddha is telling Faguna. And then, and then he extends the point. He says, not only if they speak ill of the nuns, you should behave like that, but even if they hit the nuns, and suppose they speak ill of you, you should also behave like that. And if they hit you, you should behave like that. Now the Buddha sort of seems to change topics a little bit. And he tells a story. He says, once I noticed that I felt a lot better, more content, more healthy, much lighter in the body, when I just ate one meal a day, when I didn't eat, you know, during most of the day. So he's giving them some sort of like health advice all of a sudden. And actually, it's funny because this is the health advice that nowadays, I mean, I, on my Facebook feed, you know, I, I, people are giving me this advice. Fast, intermittent fasting. Have you heard about this? Yeah, you eat, don't eat after a certain time and fast 14 hours or 16 hours every day. You'll lose weight, you'll be much healthier, your diabetes will go away and all this. Well, the Buddha noticed this very thing. He was like 3,000 years ahead of his time almost. So when the Buddha figured this out, uh, he went to the nuns and monks and he said, this is a good idea, you know, don't eat after noon. And they all said, Oh, good idea, Buddha. We will do that. And so they all listened to him, and they, they all stopped eating in the afternoon and evening. And, and that became the monastic rule. And it is still the monastic rule to this very day. To this very day, monastics who keep the full vinaya eat only one main meal a day at noon. Very strict rule. And I know it's a strict rule because I have monastic friends, and I, when I've traveled with them, they get a little nervous as the noon hour is approaching, knowing that if we don't stop and find a place to eat before noon, they will not be able to eat anything until the next day, and they're going to be really, really hungry. Anyway, the point here is, the Buddha is telling Faguna, that when that happened, these monastics were very willing to take the Buddha's instructions in the matter, trusting that whatever the Buddha told them to do would be for their own good. The Buddha did not need to convince them or browbeat them or send them a million messages on Facebook. So he just needed to say it once, and they listened to him. He's telling Faguna. So you get the point. So I've, what I've just told you, Faguna, maybe you also should listen to me because it's really for your own good. Don't argue, even before... Faguna starts to argue, and maybe he doesn't argue. Be like the good monastics who do what I say. And do that not because I'm the boss and I'm asserting my authority and you better you know, show your fealty to me. No. Do that because 
what I'm always telling you to do is to let go of what is going to cause you harm and to pick up what I know is going to be good for you. That's why you should listen to me. Buddha then gives the example of a solid tree forest that is overgrown with all sorts of weeds and creepers. If you want the trees to grow tall and hale, you have to get rid of the weeds and the creepers so the trees have room to grow. Likewise, all monastics and all people who want to practice the Buddha way should be able to identify what is unwholesome, for instance, the attachment and anger involved in defending someone or something, and let go of it while encouraging what is wholesome, for instance, compassion, kindness, peacefulness. In that way, you prune your solitary forest and it will grow straight and true. Next, the Buddha talks about the difference between really and truly cultivating wholesomeness, kindness, and so on within yourself and doing it superficially so you look good, like a kind and nice Buddhist. It's pretty easy, he says, to be kind to nice people who do and say sweet things to you. But it's not so easy to be nice to people who insult you or cross you. So if you want to develop true wholesomeness, he says, at some depth, if you really want to develop it, pay attention especially to difficult situations and difficult people because these are the ones that are going to help you the most. He then tells a very funny story. These, these sutras are not without humor. There's all actually, because of the language is so stilted, you might not get how funny some of these stories are, but this one would be hard to miss. And I'm going to read to you the original language here, or at least part of it. Formerly, because in the same Savati, the same place where we are now, there was this housewife named Vidika. And good report about Mistress Vidika had spread thus. Mistress, Mistress Vidika is kind. Mistress Vidika is gentle. Mistress Vidika is peaceful. She had a good reputation. Now, Mistress Vidika had a maid named Kali who was clever, nimble, and neat in her work. And this maid, Kali, thought to herself, a good report about my lady has spread thus. Mistress Vidika is kind. Miss, Mistress Vidika is gentle. Mistress Vidika is peaceful. How is it now, while she does not show anger, is it nevertheless actually present in her, or is it really absent? Or else, is it just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though actually anger is present in her? Suppose I test my lady. So, the maid collie got up late. You know, she's supposed to get up very early and, you know, make the fire and get everything ready before anybody wakes up, but no, she didn't get up early. She got up late. And the mistress, Vedeka, said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? 
What's the matter that you get up so late? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, and yet you get up so late? And she was angry and displeased, and she scowled. Then the maid collie thought, the fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is, it, it is actually present in her, not absent. And it is just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it actually is present in her, not absent. Suppose I test my lady a little more. So the next day, she got up still later. And then Mistress Videka says, and here's where the the repetition that is a feature of these sutras becomes, adds to the, to me anyway, adds to the humor. Then Mr. Svideka said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you got up later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up later in the day, and she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words of displeasure. So you see this is step-by-step step escalating. And it goes on a few more steps. So we already saw, first it's a scowl, then it's some words of displeasure, and it goes on a few more steps until finally it gets to the place where uh, Vidika gets really angry, and she whacks Kali with a rolling pin, like, like a Zen master or something, only she draws blood, and Kali runs out into the street, bleeding, with a big lump on her head, telling everyone what a terrible mistress she has, which of course wrecks the good reputation of Vidika. So the Buddha then says uh, to Faguna and the monastics that he hopes they won't be like that. Appearing to be kind and patient people, respected monastics with good reputations, as long as everything goes well and people are nice to them, it's easy enough, the Buddha says, to be good and cooperative, a good and cooperative monastic, when they feed you well, you have nice robes, Lots of donations coming your way, but not so easy when there's not much food. Your robes are falling apart and there's no donations. In that case, a person needs to be truly committed to the Dharma, with faith deep enough not to throw the Dharma away when things get tough. You know, when everybody starts leaving your group because there's nicer groups somewhere else and, you know, there's not so much going on, you're not so inspired. Can you stick it out? So the Buddha is saying, be careful not to make the Dharma and the teachings into a kind of comfortable identity, a comfortable way of life. Be sure that your commitment is serious and firm. And you really want to practice no matter what. Now, I don't know about you, but I have taken this passage quite to heart. I see myself in it. Because I can see in my own life over all these years how much nicer it is for me when I appear in my robes, you know, with a nice shaved head if I'm like not uh, unshaven, but I'm all nice with my robe. It's session. I'm walking around quietly, calmly. They feed me. Life is very simple. Everybody is really nice to me. 
I feel good, right? I'm sure that under these conditions, I probably can do a pretty good job being a nice, supportive, kind priest. And I'm aware that these wonderful conditions make it very easy. But what about other times when I'm not wearing my robe and I'm not around people who think I'm, you know, a Zen priest? When I'm in the midst of people in a busy place who take a look at me and think that I'm a foolish old man and they treat me like that because under most conditions without these special conditions that I usually enjoy or so often enjoy that's how I appear just some like foolish old guy so that's when the question of how I feel and how I behave begins to become salient that's when my practice really starts. So remember, the issue here in this sutra that the Buddha is teaching about is how do you practice when people say things that upset you or give you looks of disrespect that upset you, that somehow challenge your sense of identity or right and wrong? when you feel those moments when you feel completely justified in being mean in defense of yourself or maybe someone or something that you respect maybe somebody speaks disparagingly about buddhism and you feel like you need to set them straight you know he's talking about that so now he goes into a little more detail about speech. And he says, there's only five ways that people speak to one another. There's five characteristics of all speech. And here's what, this is a direct quote. Here's the five ways that people can speak. Because there are, five, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, it may be true or untrue. It may be gentle or harsh. It may be connected with good or with harm. It may be spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. So those are the ways people can speak to us. Of course, we have no control whatsoever over the way that people will speak to us. So when their speech is untimely, untrue, harsh, mean-spirited, full of hatred, we have to practice very hard to open our minds to receive such speech without immediately defending ourselves and feeling justified in being nasty in return. And here again is the formula that the Buddha enjoins us to apply. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare, and with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. And then, this is what he said before. Now he goes a little further. He goes on. He says, we shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness, and starting with him, 
we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. That's how you should train bhikkhus. So, when confronted with the world's basic nastiness, which is not so hard to find if you stumble around the world for a short amount of time, you'll find it. When confronted with the world's basic nastiness, let's say in the shape of a person right in front of you being nasty to you, widen your mind. Make it bigger. Reach down for compassion and loving kindness. And beginning with the person in front of you, use the situation to extend compassion and loving kindness starting with that person over the entire world until your mind is, as he says, exalted, abundant, and immeasurable without any ill will because ill will is by nature the opposite of abundant and immeasurable. It's crabbed, small. Ill will cannot possibly exist in a wide open mind. Now this has something to do with what I was speaking about at the sitting on Saturday when I was talking about another text from this little uh, Sutras of the Old Way, The Finger Snap. I talked about that text uh, on this past Saturday. And that text talks about the idea of luminous mind, or we could say boundless, immeasurable mind, otherwise known as Buddha nature. In the Finger Snap Sutra, the Buddha says, that this is the nature of our mind. Which is, our mind is by its nature, without limit. It is pure. Only, we have so much karma, so much ancient twisted woundedness, that we seem to have a big habit of making that luminous, extended, all-extensive mind small. When someone talks to us with contempt and dismissal or attacks something we hold dear, we seize up, don't we? And all our ancient twisted woundedness gets reactivated and we literally feel physically small, crowded into ourselves, confined. And that's what makes us so angry. And the Buddha is telling us here, just notice that when it happens. But instead of going that way, instead of going down the well-worn pathway, go the other way. Instead of getting small, expand your mind and suffuse it with limitless sympathy. Trust your Buddha nature. Concentrate your mind on that. To make this point about the, about the limitless mind of sympathy, Buddha then gives a series of similes, which I'm going to briefly summarize for you. First he says, suppose somebody with a shovel and a basket decided that he was going to haul away the earth and put it someplace else, or otherwise ruin the earth by peeing on it or spitting on it, so that the earth would eventually become nothing but pee and spit and no longer would be the earth. 
he would never be able to do this. Because you cannot diminish the earth, you cannot destroy the earth, and the earth will absorb anything you put onto it or into it. Yes, you can dig a hole and dig out all the earth from that hole, but then where are you going to put the earth? You put it back on the earth, because that's the only place where you could put it. And all your pee and all your spit, even if you had a whole army of people peeing and spitting, would eventually just be absorbed by the earth. Same with the carbon we're putting in the earth. The earth is absorbing it. I mean, it's causing a lot of problems, but the earth is just doing what it does. The earth is still here. The planet is still here. It's not good what we're doing, but we're not destroying the earth. Destroying ourselves, destroying species. But the earth rolls on. Anyway, he says, a person trying to diminish the earth will get tired out and disappointed because it won't work. Or maybe there's someone else who decides that he's going to paint pictures onto empty space. He comes with lots of paints and lots of brushes and he feverishly is working to paint, but it doesn't work because you can't paint space. Space cannot be painted. And a person who keeps trying to do this is going to also get worn out and disappointed. Or maybe another person comes with a big torch of fire and, and this person decides that he's going to burn up the Ganges River. And he applies the torch again and again, but he never gets anywhere trying to burn up the Ganges River because the Ganges River can't be burned up. It's not that kind of thing. And a person who insists on trying to do this is simply going to get worn out and disappointed. And the, and the next simile here, the final one, is a little foreign to us and hard to appreciate. But I guess it made sense in ancient India. There is a certain catskin bag, well worked and very smooth, maybe silky, sil silky smooth, soft to the touch, you can imagine it. And someone decides they're going to make this bag crinkle and rustle, so they're poking it with sticks. But the bag cannot be made to rustle and crackle and crinkle. So all these similes are meant to tell us something about our mind. The way our mind really is. Our mind, our heart, is like the earth. It can be excavated and defiled in a million ways, but nothing will truly affect it because our mind is indestructible and it can absorb anything. Our mind and heart is like space, empty of anything and everything, radically insubstantial and not even existent really in the usual sense of that word, and therefore completely inclusive, fluid, and light. Our mind is like water, always flowing, accepting whatever you throw into it, moving forward all the time, unburnable, unbreakable. And finally, the mind of a well-trained practitioner is smooth, gentle, pliable. Nothing can wrinkle it or crackle it or crinkle it. 
since our mind actually is like this, a person who over and over and over again is trying to make the mind small and stuck and mean and crabby is going to get worn out and very disappointed. Doesn't that seem right? Don't we all get worn out and disappointed with our, all of our afflictive emotions and all of our efforts to defend and protect and yell and scream and make the other guy agree with us and all the things that upset us? Don't they wear us out? I mean, it's very exhausting, right? To go on and on in the way we go on and on. We are so enraptured and compelled by our afflictive emotions by our supposed need for respect and honor, our need to defend right and wrong, to protect, our need to understand everything and be in control of everything, it's exhausting. Because it goes against the grain of how we really are. Wait, isn't this sutra called the simile of the saw? What happened to the simile of the saw? Well, it's at the very end. He gives the simile of the saw. This is the most drastic simile of all. And maybe some of you remember the famous passage in the Diamond Sutra about King Kalinda. This is, this, this is uh, the same. They don't mention King Kalinda here, but it's the same, basically the same story. Here's what he says. Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gives rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, Bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words we shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving-kindness and starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, if you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? No, venerable sir. Therefore, because you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. This will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. In other words, this is a rule for your own good. And that's what the Buddha said. And the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Probably comes to mind the many stories. I mean, we don't know if they're true or not, but we were told that they're true, and they could very well be true, I believe them, of Tibetan monastics. Uh, captured by the Chinese uh, in days gone by, maybe still today, tortured and imprisoned, who uh, 
reported that they never hated or were upset with their oppressors, but that they used the experience to generate more and more compassion. That's exactly what the Buddha is saying here. So that's my uh, talk on the simile of the saw. And now um, I'm going to pose some questions for you. And um, Shufi will put you into groups in a minute. But uh, I think that after I do that and Shufi opens the groups, I think I'll go and see how Kathy is doing and she uh, may want me to take her to the emergency room again because that might be the only way that she can get seen by a doctor today. So if so, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll spend the time with her and, and I'll, I, I won't come back after the groups. John will come back with you and debrief with you after the groups. I'll go away. So thank you for listening. But here's the thing. I have two points for you to consider. You can consider one of them or both of them in the groups. First of all, just a kind of phenomenological report on what have you noticed in your life when you have been abused or spoken to in nasty ways or when you found yourself defending something or somebody. What, what has been your experience of that? That's the first point. The second point is just to say that this teaching is undoubtedly very, very idealistic, right? I don't have to say that. We, 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 we know that. It's very, very idealistic. What about that? Can we practice it? Do we say, no, it's ridiculous, nobody can do that, nobody even should do that? Or is there a way that actually we can take it to heart? And how would you do that? So those are the two things. I'll repeat them again, just in case. First of all, what have you noticed in your own life when it comes to people talking to you in a mean way, or you're, especially when it comes to you defending yourself or somebody else? How has that gone for you? And secondly, can we make use of this idealistic teaching? And how would we do that? So I'm going to leave you with those questions, and uh, Shufi will put you into groups, and John, you'll have groups. Uh, you and the, and, uh, the few people who were there at the seminar will be in groups there. And then uh, you can carry on without me. I'm really sorry uh, not to be there with you. I'm I feel I really wanted to make sure that I could be here to give the talk and say hi to everybody, but I'm going to go now, and uh, hopefully uh, I will I will have uh, no bad news to report about Kathy's health. I, I'm actually quite confident. I think she's fine, and this is a very weird thing without anything serious. That's what I really believe, so I'm not actually upset about it. But if anything, if that's not true, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly let you know, because we all, you guys all know Kathy, and we all love her, so thank you, everybody. Good night.